You are listening to the Social Sport Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Zimmerman, and this show is a member of the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. On Social Sport, I feature stories and conversations with endurance athletes of all types committed to fostering social change. The athletes that I speak with are climate change activists, mental health advocates, promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces, and much more. But what ties all of these athletes together is that they each explore the connection between sport and activism in their lives. Fourteenth, 2020, 700 runners met at the East River Amphitheater in Manhattan, New York, masks on their faces and clad in white clothing. They were running in response to the reckoning on white supremacy and racial violence that has spread around the country. The video of Ahmaud Arbery's killing, the murder of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor at the hands of police, and countless other instances of violence against Black people. These runners ran over the Williamsburg Bridge and into Brooklyn, and they ended with a conversation on racism in running, led by leaders of the New York City running community. That began the Running to Protest movement. On September 13th, I took part in one of these protest runs for the first time. There was something immeasurably powerful about hundreds of bodies clad in white, a sea of white, this time blocking the Brooklyn Bridge. They moved over the bridge and through the streets of Brooklyn, demanding justice for Breonna Taylor, justice for Black women, for Black people. I wanted to learn more about this powerful movement and what it means for the future of the New York running community. Running to protest is just something that's, that was needed. Um, you know, like I said before, there's many ways to protest. I was just to run and I know a lot of runners. So coming up with that whole um, idea was just um, sitting there waiting for someone to actually tackle it. And it just happened to be that someone just happened to be me. And the response of it was bigger than um, what I thought. And it, and it works, you know, it actually helps um, our allies, um, you know, know um, where we come from, what our backgrounds are. Mm-hmm. But it also helps because we see that our allies that wants to help us, you know, and in and, and those type of situations, those conversations never really came about before we actually saw what happened to Mr. George Floyd. But now those conversations come up um, so quickly and you don't have to feel out of the norm or out of place by conversing about um, that topic. That was Coffee, the founder of Running to Protest, a powerful force in the New York City running community and so much more. In his words and mine too, he is also an A-OK guy to get along with. 
My name is Coffee. That's actually my last name. That's my family's name. That's the name I've been going by since for 20 years now. So if you happen to know my first name, it doesn't register because I haven't been called that in decades. Um, I'm from a small town called Aurora, North Carolina, population 520 people. Um, went to college um, in Virginia, um, Richmond, Virginia, played college basketball. Um, got a speech and drama degree in arts and sciences and moved to New York. So from, from the acting side of things, um, end up modeling as soon as I got here, because modeling is what it was back in the day, a tear sheet and, you know, in a paper magazine. And then that led me to becoming the fashion editor of a hip hop magazine called Double XL magazine, which was like the number one hip hop magazine in the 2000s. And then um, got into running, start running here in New York, wanted to know more about New York. So instead of me jumping on a train, asking somebody for a ride or jumping on a bus, I would run, get lost and, you know, just find out what New York had to offer uh, from a sightseeing standpoint, but also from running, um, well, through running. And then um, got involved with running on the streets with Nike, uh, became a pacer for Nike got to know all these other runners that was um, training for the different marathons. Uh, I'm an A-OK guy to get along with. So everybody that came to all the thousands of people that I trained, all the thousands of people that actually came to, to train actually feel like I'm okay, cool in their book, I guess. Um, they all cool in mine. And we're here today um, speaking about what's happening in America while I'm here in Brooklyn, New York. That is what we are talking about today. Yeah, everything going on in America right now. And at Coffee, I can tell you, I've spoken to people with so many different backgrounds on this podcast. I have to say, you probably have the most diverse and varied background of anyone. You have done everything. <laughs> it's I don't know how you have done so many things. And you continue to, to you know, dip your toes in so many different buckets. Not even dip your toes. You do so much in the city. So it's really amazing. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate it. I, I, I mean, I would say, you know, it's, it's like when you have something in mind that you set out for, I guess I'm the type that I don't stop because I, I don't believe in something keeping me away from it. Like if someone tells me, no, there's a way around that, you know, and that's an act and that was in modeling. Um, that's in filmmaking today. Um, that's in, you know, just doing whatever it is that you have a passion to do. And, and, you know, and plus I have kids and with that now, you know, it's way more important now, the fact that I have kids than it was when I didn't have kids, because I want them to know that every goal that I have, I succeed in, but I only succeeded because I didn't give up. And that's the number one thing that I want to make sure that I instill in them. Don't ever give up and don't ever let somebody tell you that you can't. So that's that's how I was able to flamingo all that here in New York and what I'm still doing now. You brought up your kids and just today you posted a really powerful little video on your Instagram, which I believe was your daughter, correct? Yes, yes. And she was talking about, I mean, she was talking about her experience with race in America and it was a, a really powerful little message from a nine-year-old girl about what she is thinking about, you know, her experience as a, a girl of color in America. And it made me think how much of this protesting that you do is because of your own experience and how much is because of your children and their futures. 
It's 50 50. Um, I would say maybe 20. Well, you know what? I take that back. Maybe um, 40, 60, 60% more of them, 40% more of me. Because we already, you know, I already gone through this um, with Rodney King, you know, although we was in a small town. I'm not even sure if you were even born with Rodney King. Uh, <laughs> yeah, when that happened in the early 90s. But um, when that happened, I remember everyone was glued to the television, um, even, you know, and I was a teenager at the time. And everyone was glued to the television to see what was going to happen. And, you know, there was no social media, but it was big enough for the world or this country to keep their eyes on. And I remember um, when, when the verdict came out and those cops were not found guilty, we all knew something was about to happen. Mm -hmm. uh, we didn't know how dangerous it was going to be, even if that's, I mean, is that really considered dangerous? I, I don't know, but it, um, it was some things that did occur that shouldn't have happened the way it did, but I understood, you know, no one should have gotten hurt. That part I don't agree with, you know, pulling the guy off the truck and, you know, yeah. that, no, I don't agree with those things. So I was already immune to this. And then now I'm more out there, yeah, um, because of my kids, because we don't want that generation to go through what we gone through. You know, like I said this before, like my great, great grandparents went through it and they were sick and tired. My grandparents went through it. They were sick and tired. My parents went through it. They sick and tired and I'm sick and tired of it now. And I don't want my kids saying the exact same thing that I'm telling you um, today. So my daughter, yes, she's nine, but she is asking those type of questions and I can't sugarcoat around that. I refuse to sugarcoat around that. You know, the average nine-year-old shouldn't be talking about those things or even worried about those things, you know. But I can't talk to her, you know, about riding a bike, which is what I mentioned um, in the caption of the IG. I can't speak to her about, you know, pretending, you know, playing around with it in case if she has a crush on someone or someone has a crush on her. I can't even have fun with her like that. The conversations is about tomorrow, five years from now, 10 years from now, 20 years from now. And that's why I am out there um, trying to, in hopes that I can help create a better space for her and her generation. So yeah, 40% me, 60% them. Well, you talk about how you, you don't want your children's generation to go through what you had to go through and, and continue to go through. And You've been so open and honest about your experience as a black man and a runner in various platforms you've talked about, you know, yeah. getting stopped by cops on your way home from Nike Run Club and running at midnight to avoid stairs during the day. All these, you know, really vivid experiences. And I'm curious whether this is something you felt you could talk about openly before 2020. No, I, did, I wasn't telling anyone. Even when I would run home from Nike, like we get out like around 7, 45, 8 o'clock. A um, couple of times I gotten stopped from running from work to home, but I wouldn't share it with anyone because again, as I mentioned earlier, you know, you don't know how those type of conversations would go. And plus, I don't want to put what happened to me on somebody else's back. You know, I don't want to bother them with my troubles. It's not like this is the first time um, something like this has happened. This happened in Virginia. This happened in North Carolina. 
So the fact that it happened in other states, again, I'm already, you know, I was, I'm not going to say I was built for this, but what I will say is that I was ready for this because that's what my grandparents and parents um, put into me uh, from such a young age. So getting stopped running in New York, I would say I wouldn't have expected that being that there's so many cultures here. Getting stopped in North Carolina and Virginia, you either black or you white. When I was there, you know, we're talking like 90s. So you was either black or white in the 90s. When I got stopped, it was nothing. The only thing I had to do, you know, you ain't have cell phones back then. The only thing that I was told to do was, you know, answer. Don't put your hand in your pockets and just make sure that you don't try to run. Those were the three things that I was told to um, back then. But now it's even different nowadays because now you have a cell phone. So you have to be extremely careful because that cell phone could look like it's a gun or something in your pocket. And they using all kinds of excuses to delete us from the world. So my conversation with my kids is totally different than the conversation than I was having back in the day with the people who was raising me and sharing the tools of how the, to make it as a black person in this world. And that reality is something that I think, of course, like white people are finally waking up to, but not enough, not to any, you know, large extent that it's really being understood that day to day of not, of thinking about running with a cell phone, you know, and I think that every white person needs to hear that again and again. So, so thank you for, you know, taking the labor of sharing that experience again. And I, you know, want to kind of bridge over to running to protest because I know you went from this experience of, of talking about being a black male runner in New York City to starting this extremely powerful event. How did you get to starting it? Come from seeing the, the various uh, protests out here um, that's happening in New York and not just in this country, but all over the world. And me um, actually going outside one night to be a part of the protest and then me being set up because um, I was ran after uh, the protest that was actually here in New York. And that's when the following day um, I went on a run that ended up being marathon numbers. And that's what I came up with the idea of running to protests. And I called a friend of mine and of a running friend, Tony Cheon, and pitched, well, then pitched, told him the idea and he was like, I think it's splendid. And I was like, yeah, you know, and then I was like, you know, it'll get like 40 to 60 people. Mm. But he already knew from the jump that coffee, he like, he literally said right then and there, coffee, I'm telling you, it's going to be way more than 40 to 60 people. And I'm like, yeah, well, okay, if it is, it's all good. But those 40 to 60 people will at least listen to me. And it, you know, it turned out to be what, 700 to 1,000 people. Um, that showed up for the very first one. And, you know, it was just all about educating is the number one tool uh, in my household and where I come from. And that's how I wanted to start. So every single run into protest will be about something totally different. Um, if you've been to whoever that has come to um, every single one of them, they leave with a different experience because we never we would never talk about the same things twice. Um, 
it would never be on that topic. So for like the one that you came to was totally mm -hmm. highlighting Breonna Taylor. Mm -hmm. um, the one that I'm having this Sunday is totally highlighting um, voting. Um, the very first one is what was highlighting um, our backgrounds, the different backgrounds that we all come from. But when you hear where we come from, it all intertwines with one, one background because we all being harassed for different things. But the main thing there was being harassed for no reason at all because of the color that we are. And then the second one was just showing people where Seneca Village was because mm -hmm. millions of people have ran Central Park. Not that many, a very small percentage knew about Seneca Village in Central Park and Central and you know Seneca Village was similar to what Black Wall Street was. It was just smaller, but it was here in New York. And then um, the third one was dedicated to um, the third one was dedicated to um, jail, like how many of us have been literally been thrown in jail for no apparent reason. And around that exact same time when the third run into protest came about, um, John Lewis passed away. So I made it an issue to, okay, for, as far as the route was concerned, let's, let's, you know what, let's cause trouble, good trouble on, by taking the Brooklyn bridge and, mm -hmm. and, you know, and by taking the Brooklyn bridge, let's stop in the middle of the bridge and pay homage to John Lewis. And that's what we did. Stop in the middle of the Brooklyn Bridge and pay uh, homage to Congressman um, John Lewis. And then the fourth one, I mean, yeah, the one after that, the fourth one was Breonna Taylor. And I understood what, when we did that for Congressman John Lewis, I understood the no justice, no peace with the traffic. Mm -hmm. So Breonna Taylor, I figured let's do the exact same thing but on this one, let's stop at Fort Greene Park and the monument to, so it can get more visibility and more people can hear what we had to say about Breonna Taylor. And that's why we ended at a different destination than we did the one when we did it for uh, criminal justice and John Lewis. And this last, I mean, the next one, which is what I just mentioned, the fifth one is um, all about voting him out. Like when I say vote, I don't wanna just say vote. No, I'm gonna be blunt. I'm very blunt with everything that I say vote yeah. him out and i noticed when we put that flyer out oh i got some dms and i got some people that didn't like that but that's the whole purpose of putting that message out there right because for one if you're following me how is it that you think where what is it that you think of me why are you following me like what did you really think because the minute i put vote him out Oh, unfollow. That's not a good thing. Why are you trying to be, get people to jump on y'all side? But you've been following me for this long. What did you think? So it just made a lot of people come out the closet and show their true colors um, when that yeah. brought him out came, came about. But I'm happy for that. Some of them were surprises uh, of people that I know, but I, you can't, when you, I, I'd rather for them not be a friend of mine than to pretend to be a friend of mine. Yeah. I mean, where is the disconnect there? How could you, you know, not think you wanted to vote him out? And I'm, I'm happy that you're being that blunt. I think, I guess you need to be. It sounds like it. Yeah. yeah. But so there have been four, there will be five running to protest events by this yes. weekend, by Sunday. Yes. And you originally thought there'd be 40 to 60 people. The first running to protest, protest event, um, excuse me, on June 14th, there were 700 runners, correct? Yes. 
And even, you know, the fourth event I was at a few weeks ago, there were hundreds of runners spanning the Brooklyn Bridge. What is that experience like to see this event and these events continually blow up to that extent and the visual of all those runners and bikers when you came at it thinking there'd be maybe 60 people? I mean, it's a great thing to see. It shows that who cares, right? Um, you know, again, um, in this situation, I always, regardless of the fact that we just now seeing um, what's happening, what's been happening for the past couple of months, I, I have always been the person that wonder who are these people really that I'm running with? Who are these people really that I'm training? So now I get to see that when our lives are at hand or at stake, I should say, right? Because um, they brutally murdering us at daylight as well as nighttime. And now I wanna see who has my back. And if any of these people wanna pay me back, then that's what they are doing and this is how they are doing it because it's bigger than me, you know, that you're coming, you're coming for me, but you're also coming for my kids. And that's how I look at it. You don't only just care about me, you care about my well-being, but you care about the well-being of my children as well. So it's actually a blessing to step back every now and then, take a deep breath. And I cried, shed tears a couple of times. If you was at the last one, you saw me shed tears um, uh, uh, when we start. And, and it's hard to make me cry, but when I'm very passionate about something, that's what that's what gets the tears to come out of my eyes because the tears is not saying that I'm weaker in a sense. It's just how powerful the movement is and the fact that we're in 2020 still dealing with the same thing that's been happening for 400 years. And that amazes me because I would never think that in 2020 I would be, you know, on a Zoom conversing with you about mm -hmm. what's happening right now, you know, for your podcast. But here I am and I'm a do my best and whatever it is that I can do as long as I'm here to try to create um, great things out of the bad things that's occurring at the moment. So that we won't be here doing this in, you know, 20, 30, you know, 10 years from now or whenever it is. It's, yeah, I hope that we're, we're not talking about this on my podcast yeah. soon. That's the and question. Yeah. And you said how powerful this movement is. And I, I agree. And I also think how powerful movement, the act of, of moving as people do in these protests, I think that is super powerful. And you're someone who has had your feet in so many different buckets, I guess, to use that metaphor. You played basketball. You were you know, a big basketball player, a model, an actor. You're still a filmmaker. Do you think there's something unique about the running community in representing this movement? Or do you think that would, it would be powerful in any of these other worlds that you've occupied? I think it's powerful in every world that I occupy, but I, the, the number one thing though is very powerful in running because running is what keep me healthy, health, healthy and healthier enough to continue filmmaking, to continue acting, and to continue to model um, when whoever I model for nowadays, that's what running has done. So I kind of put running above everything else. 
because it keeps me healthy, slim, fit, in shape. And, and look at the world that we're living in today. It's all about being healthy, right? So running for me is like top level. It's number one. And then filmmaking and basketball, no. My, my, mm. That's, you know, I still play every year, but that's, no, that's, you know, I can run forever. You can't play basketball competitively <laughs> forever yeah. as you get older. But, um, but running, you can do that. And the other, the other things that I do is all because of running, keeping me in shape. I can take deep breaths, you know, I can catch my breath. I can run full speed when needed. Hopefully it's not needed, but I can do those things. And when I stop, I'm still a-okay. I don't have to bend over. <sighs> you know, I see those type of people, you know? And so running is definitely um, number one on that list. For sure, for sure. So what hopes do you have for the future of these running to protest events? Do you see these carrying on um, into, you know, maybe the rest of 2020 and even far further than that? Yeah. So running to protest, we'll, we will continue being, you will continue seeing us out there. Um, we just started talking um, yesterday because we have community meetings um, every other Thursday and uh, one about voting that that meeting was yesterday and we spoke about it just a little bit about what running to protest looked like throughout the winter and we came up with a good idea of you know in the running i mean in the winter it gets cold outside so we'll still be out there but it, we would just do something totally different mm -hmm. which would be we'll just run through the different neighborhoods as a unit so it would still be just like how we're doing now and it could just be a quiet protest run through these different neighborhoods, just so they'll know that we're still here and we know that they see us and we see them. So we're gonna continue doing this thing. Um, we're not gonna stop because as you see every single day, there's police brutality every day. Um, even police brutality that happened a year ago are still coming out today or years ago. I mean, I don't know if you follow Sean King at all, but he just posted one yesterday. Um, I forget his first name, I'm sorry, but his last name is Green, um, G-R-E-E-N-E. -E. And he was a man who they was trying to say that got in a car accident and died. Turns out, man didn't even almost have a car accident. The cops beat him to death. And his mother, God bless her soul, his family, they been saying that from day one, but because it, there was no light shine on that, you know, they was getting away with it. Now that there's a little light shined on it, I mean, not a little, a lot that's about to be shined on it. You know, these guys are guilty because one of them already committed suicide. So it's always happening, it's always happening. And 99% of the time is happening to black people and people of color. So we will always be running to protest, um, trying to shine light on what's wrong. And there's a lot of wrong when we can't be looked upon as equal. The statement you said, we're still here. I think that simple statement is so powerful. Just, you know, we're still here. We're gonna keep fighting there's nothing more powerful than that reminder. Thank you for that. For sure. And 
I mean, we've talked about how these conversations weren't really being had to the same extent in New York or the New York running community beforehand. What effect do you see this having on the running community in New York City? I think um, they just going to start looking at be they're going to become more aware, put it that way. Stop just, you know, looking at us as I guess I can I guess second class runners. I can say, uh, give us more opportunity. Um, don't just shy us away or throw us away because we're black or people of color. And that's just not for runners on the street. That's also for the board that has running gear, running sneakers. Like we want, it should be way more diverse than what it is. We just want to, again, we just want to be treated equally, fairly when it comes to money, when it comes to respect. You know, the biggest thing right now as we speak that's bigger than white is green and that's money. And I think that's where a lot of times things get misconstrued because you don't want, for whatever reason, white America never really wanted to see black Americans come up um, when it comes to, you know, being rich or whatnot. And now I think you can see that we're just as qualified as any culture out there. So we just want to be treated fairly while running. We don't want anyone to run by us and um, hold a backpack tighter as if we wanted to snatch it off of them. Yeah. We we out there doing the same thing that, you know, you're doing by trying to stay healthy with however many miles that we plan out um, to run. So that's, that's, that's basically it. Well, Coffee, you've talked about so many crucial realities and said so many powerful things. And I'm wondering if you wanted to leave listeners or if any call to action, your running to protest events have focused on so many different pieces of demanding justice and, and demanding action. Is there any specific call to action right now that comes to mind? The biggest call to action is just pretty much just um, vote. Because we can we can protest all we want. I don't care if we got one person. I don't care if you have a million people in the protest. It looks great. It looks powerful. And there's unity. But if those same amount of people don't go to the polls and vote, it's not going to mean a damn thing. It's not going to mean a damn thing. And the reason why we saying vote, because this is the person who really had these white supremacist people out there thinking that is a-okay to do whatever, and he's going to vouch for them to get out. I mean, I don't know if you saw the debate the other day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I, wish I hadn't, but yep. And how he called out his white supremacist homies. Yeah. And how they going, you know, of course they're going to use that as a commercial, right? For, for, you know, to get more people to believe in them and in hopes that they can get brainwashed the youth to become a part of who they are as a unit. And I'm not gonna say their names, but you heard their names and I know their names because mm -hmm. I don't wanna promote anything that's along those lines. So my number one thing is to um, vote 
and make sure you know who you are voting for because that's very, very crucial and important because we don't want another Daniel Cameron, you know, who didn't do justice for Breonna Taylor. And right now, as we speak, that case should be reopened. And I think it will. But and I think he knows he screwed up. And he's a black man. And that's that. Oh, man, that that's crazy to me. Yeah. Like, I look at that totally different because he should know what we have gone through. He should have known that those cops was lying. He should have known that she was asleep and she gets murdered in her sleep. She was an EMT worker. You know, see, she was a social worker. Like, like, what more can we get or expect? You know, we see us getting murdered on phones. The video doesn't mean anything. Uh, we the thugs, but they're not the thugs. Uh, we see a guy, white white kid, go in church and try to kill everybody in the church, and then they arrest him peacefully and take him to Burger King when all we doing is driving in a car, they stop us and they come up with the guns and shoot them, shoot you right there in the car with your little daughter in the backseat. We get treated so differently, man. It's, it's painful. It's painful. And I'm living this every single day and it hurts, but I can't allow that to, to stop me. So the number one thing is to V-O-T-E, vote and vote for the right person. And that person is not who's in office right now. Yeah, I was just gonna say, you say, you say vote, but when, when you and I say vote, just like you said earlier, what we really mean is vote him out. And yeah. I appreciate you know how blunt you are with that. So Coffee, thank you again for this conversation, for your power, for the movement you've created and for everything you're doing. This has been really powerful. No, thank you. I appreciate it. And hopefully I see you out there Sunday if you're in New York. Oh, you will. I'll be there. I was blown away by the work of Coffee and the entire Running to Protest team, but I was curious how this event might change the New York City running community going forward. Would it change the New York City running community? I wasn't sure, so I talked to Chris Chavez. He's the founder of Sidious Mag and the journalist who covers running for Sports Illustrated. Due to his journalism and his personal involvement in the NYC running community, I knew he would have lots of insight on the effect of running to protest on the community as a whole. So first of all, I want folks to understand who you are if they aren't aware already. So who are you, what do you do, and where are you right now? So I'm in Forest Hills in Queens in my apartment out here, uh, born and raised in New York City. My full-time job is I'm a uh, sports writer with Sports Illustrated. So I kind of had the breaking news team uh, there, you know, usually throughout the week. That's Monday through Friday, um, where anything that happens across all these different sports, like... I have to kind of just stay up with whatever's going on, assign it, and then edit a bunch of stories. Um, but I'm also, I write a bunch of features and report on track and field, marathons, the Olympics. That's kind of like my bread and butter. And so um, I have a lot of fun with that. And then on the side, I guess three years ago, I started Sidious Mag. And so that's been a lot of fun for me where I can be add a little bit more like humor, commentary, and nerdiness, I think, to the sport. And 
Uh, so I've created that sort of avenue there. And, you know, I host a weekly podcast there, the Sidious Mag podcast. And then at the same time, over the course of the three years, I've just launched a bunch of other different shows. And so definitely leaned into podcasting more on the side. I just kind of have really fallen in love with that form of storytelling. You're very well known for your work in the running community, but I think also, I mean, in the New York running community specifically, when I think about New York running, your work is often kind of front and center there. So that's that's why I wanted to have you on today because I'm really curious about this kind of shift that I've perceived in the New York running community and the running community in general. And I'm excited to hear your take on it as kind of like the New York running guy <laughs> in my mind. Yeah, I wouldn't say I'm like the expert or anything like that because, you know, and especially when it comes to like the history of New York running, um, like it just goes so far back and I don't know every single thing. But yeah, I guess like in a way, launching the Runners of NYC podcast that I host with uh, Leanne Sherrick, one of my teammates on the Brooklyn Track Club, uh, we, we started doing that, I think, in October of 2018 and just kind of like set out on interviewing a bunch of different interesting people within the New York City running community. And that's not necessarily the fastest people. These are people who, you know, have started their own crews and and that's a big component to the New York running scene. And uh, so some of these people, you know, are toward the back of the pack, but they're doing really amazing and awesome things. And so uh, it's been a lot of fun to like get to know the community in that way and tapping into all these various different audiences and walks of life. I'm trying to think because like I've got friends who are like in Chicago. Um, I love that city. I've got friends out in California and I just don't know if there's like any sort of running community that compares to what New York has because it's really unique. Oh, 100%. I'm glad you you said that because I'm someone who's lived a lot of places. I actually recently moved uh, to New York from Chicago. And even just being here for a short period of time, even though I'm, I was born here, it's like nothing else in the running community. And I think just active young people. There are so many different groups and cohorts of that. It's unique, totally. So in your experience, how politically engaged is the New York running community? Yeah, so this is interesting because it came up like sort of in uh, the first running to protest, I think that took place back in early June-ish, I'm pretty sure it was. And it was a conversation of just like how everyone is part of this huge community. But up until I think this year and this fall, I don't think everyone's been this, I guess, politically motivated to really years ago 2003 or whatever it was where Mike Sace I think is one of the founders of Bridge Runners and I think what he said really stood out to me was like back then they made running cool and now you see crews all around the world in London in Germany and that kind of stuff where it's cool this urban sort of running scene and now that you have like this huge following and like these groups I think you can mobilize these people to take action. And in this sense, and in this time period, I think the most important thing is to get involved in these communities to make change politically, socially. I think the the line that he said was like, we made running cool. Now I think it's time to make voting cool. And that mm-hmm. uh, it's something like organizing runs to the polls and that kind of stuff. And so I'm excited to see what happens on election night, but this is definitely something that I have seen that there's definitely been an awakening in the New York City running scene. I'm wondering how that kind of compares in your perspective 
as a journalist and very tapped into kind of the the U.S. running scene, maybe the global running scene, I don't know, but at least the U.S. running scene, how that New York political engagement this year has compared to political engagement of runners elsewhere. Yeah, so it's funny because like, I don't think you can really separate, running has had a history where protests and these demonstrations have, you know, seeped into the sport, I think. The biggest example is obviously uh, Tommy Smith and John Carlos at the 1968 Olympics. And that's at the Olympics at the highest level. Um, and there's been other examples as well. where it's like Kathy Freeman in Sydney, where she grabbed two flags. Um, even in 2016, for me, that was, I was at those Olympics. And the moment that gripped me the most was Faisa Lalisa, the Ethiopian marathoner, raising his arms above his head and crossing them to form an X. And it was a sign protesting the Ethiopian government. Um, and then from there, like he said that he feared for his life and life was never the same uh, for him. That was a really cool story. So I remember following him. Uh, he eventually made his way to the United States, got a visa and showed up in Washington, DC. I went down there uh, to meet with him. I met with him later on in Flagstaff, Arizona, where he settled down for a bit and eventually reunited with his family and is now back in Ethiopia. And I think about him often, especially in times like these, where it's like that was a big political demonstration and he did make you know, major waves. He ended up going back to Ethiopia. And I wonder now, nowadays, he's not competing as much anymore, but I think about like that made a big impact and he took advantage of the platform that he had at the Olympics and through the sport to amplify this message for his people. It was the Oromo people of Ethiopia getting oppressed by the Ethiopian government. And so I learned so much about that too because of this demonstration. It was interesting for me to all of a sudden have this uh, education and sort of like interest in what was going on in Ethiopia. And I hope that that's also happening right now with other people where you know, now that you're starting to see, maybe it's your favorite athlete saying something on social media. Running has been used in the past to get protests and messages across. And so when you see it at the biggest level, like the Olympics, where it's actually not allowed, like there's something in the Olympic charter that says you can get disqualified and lose your medal for doing this. Like if that, if they're doing it there, there's no reason why we can't do it on a much smaller scale in our own communities. Yeah, and I think you cited some really powerful examples kind of getting at the essence of how elite athletes can use their voice and their platform for good. But you also cited these examples at the highest level. You're, you know, we're talking about the Olympics. And I'm thinking like, you know, in, in 2020, uh, we started to talk much more in all parts of society about police brutality and about white supremacy. And I feel like there was Ahmaud Arbery's murder. And then all of a sudden, the general running community was jumping into anti-racism work. And of course, there are these other, these examples that you cited before that. But in my mind, Ahmaud Arbery's murder was like the big, okay, now we have to do something. Am I being too pessimistic? Do you think that people in the general running community worth thinking about these issues to a large extent before 2020? I think maybe they, they, they were thinking about it, but it wasn't as in your face, I think, as 
Ahmaud Arbery's death was because one, it got amplified that this was someone who was out for a jog and got murdered by two racist white men and it shouldn't have happened. And I don't think anyone should ever have to fear, you know, these instances of when they go out for a run because everyone does it. But in reality, I think you start to hear more and more about how that luxury and that simplicity that you think of the sport doesn't apply to everyone. Granted, I think it's also the fact that there were very few distractions, I think, uh, at the in late May when it happened. Well, it, actually, it happened way before that. But I think like the video coming out in late May is what really was the tipping point for people. And we're also in the middle of a pandemic where at that point, there's no sports going on. There's no real, I guess, like entertainment. You can't go to the movie theater, uh, at least not in New York yet. Um, and so these distractions just aren't there. And so your your attention is drawn to whatever is going on in the world. And for a couple of days, this was the big thing. And I think from there, obviously, everyone went out and ran their, I think it was like 2.2 miles um, for his birthday. And then that was kind of it. Like, I think for the running community, that was like the first box that they, that they checked. And from there, it's a couple of weeks happen. And you start to wonder, did those conversations and did that instance really settle in? And then George Floyd's death happens. And from there, it was everyone posting this black square. And then that was sort of another box that could be checked. But then it's like, what are you doing after that? It's like, and and the big thing that I think people discuss is like, did your feed go back to normal all of a sudden? And so, so that's kind of like the social media side of things, which can also be complicated. There's a lot of different things that are being thrown at you, lots of resources, things to read and that kind of stuff. And it takes time for people to kind of take it all in and, and, and do that process of learning and listening. So lots of people are working at different paces, but I do think it came to uh, late May for this thing to really be in your face and to really stick. But, you know, in the past, like these were people's real lives experiences. Yeah, for sure. And I would love to speak more specifically about this in the New York running community. And, and I know you also have had experiences at running protests and I would just love to hear more of your observations, what that experience has been like for you. Yeah, so the first one that I went to was actually not too long after I spent, I think it was like nine weeks in Princeton during the early portion of the pandemic. And once I got back to New York, I think it was only a couple of days later for me to be able to go to the very first one that uh, Coffee organized. I think that was a moment for him to kind of step into, he's been pacing all these running groups in the past, but he finally stepped into the spotlight for a bit. And he's kind of really definitely taken advantage of this moment to, while you're in it, now bring along all these people um, and, and seize this moment to educate and to get everyone participating. And so the first protest run was, was amazing because I, you know, there's no official count, but to see 700 plus, I don't even know what it was, maybe a thousand people show up all wearing white shirts um, in the middle of a pandemic that just kind of like shows and kind of stresses that like, yeah, I mean, this, this virus really sucks. But what sucks even more is the fact that police are killing black people and we're over it. Like we're fed up. That first protest run was awesome, I think. And 
I didn't actually even run it. I rode my bike alongside it and, you know, was keeping, you know, safe social distance from people too. Everyone was wearing masks. And so being super responsible about it. And the key component was like, yeah, it was a two mile run, but it was afterwards sitting there and listening to all of these speakers copy lined up pretty much most of the um, big uh, crew leaders in New York city. And they weren't all people of color. There were white people there as well, speaking on sort of, you know, their own, their experiences, and then also like what they've been learning and what message that they want to, to pass along. It was a hot day. And I remember sitting in the amphitheater right by the East river track. And, you know, obviously the, the speaker series went on for a couple hours and you really start to see, you know, there's a lot of people at the very beginning and then towards the end, like people start to leave. But even at the very end for the last speaker, there were still a lot of people there. And I think it kind of just also stressed the fact it's like, how long are you willing to commit to doing the work? And like, how long are you in this? Because this is, and like the analogy that gets thrown around with this is that this is a marathon and, and we're not even in mile one. But I think like that analogy, you can even make the argument that like, we're still at home, like having our coffee before we even show up to, to, the, to the race, because like you want to be optimistic and be like, there's a happy ending in sight. But when you turn on the news and you see another case come up of someone being killed, it's just like you realize like we've got a long ways to go even now. Yeah, we, we certainly do. It, it's overwhelming, but it's an important thing to mention. I know you also did an episode on that protest that you had attended and on the speaker series where you actually taped the speaker series happening. So I'll link that in the show notes because I think that that is an important one for listeners to reference. You, I mean, did such a great job with that. And I think it really gets at the essence of what is on the minds of a lot of the leaders of the New York running community when it comes to activism. Yeah, definitely. And that was kind of an instance where I realized kind of sitting there, I was like, man, I'm not recording this. And thankfully they had like an Instagram live going and I just pulled, I asked coffee for permission, pulled the audio and then edited it up, chopped it up for people to have. And I think it ends up being like 90 something minutes. So you don't have to sit in the sun for, for the whole entire time. And you can go back and listen to this thing whenever. And so I also felt that was important. You could sit in the sun though. If you wanted the full yeah. experience, you could recreate it. It wouldn't be the same, but. <laughs> exactly. So I would love to kind of get in the head of Chris Chavez and how this is affecting your own work. I mean, I think when I look back on your work, you are someone who historically hasn't strayed from tough subjects, in my opinion. I mean, you were talking to Mary Kane early days in the, when the story of Alberto Salazar broke. You've brought on lots of runner activists on your podcasts, but I see you becoming more political. And maybe the, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I'm, I'm thinking specifically about the article you did in June for Sports Illustrated on Black track athletes sharing their encounters with racism. Is this a conscious decision on your part? Are you thinking, I want to become more political? Is this just the effect of the time on your work? What is that in your brain? <laughs> Yeah, I think the days are over of leaving politics sort of at the door. And so, um, yeah, if that's kind of like the impression that people get from my work, then I'm totally okay with it. And like, for the most part, I would say 
a lot of the people who probably do read this and and, and listen and uh, and follow me sort of are uh, aligned with with my sort of viewpoints, and that's totally okay with me. Occasionally, I will hear from like a really you know angry Trump supporter and that kind of stuff, but all it takes is just a little mute button to to take care of that. But um, yeah, I because this is interesting. I made an appearance on Allie on the Run and her podcast, and she sort of like did ask me, you know do you see yourself as sort of like an influencer? And I hate that word. Um, but it was more of just the fact of acknowledging that you do have sort of a presence of following and, and people do read and, and listen to, to you. Um, and what are you doing sort of with that platform? And, you know, for, I it did take a moment of reckoning to look back at, you know, the list of guests that we've had on runners of NYC and realizing, holy shit, like I'm like, it's, it's kind of white, like for, for a good portion of it. Um, and that's not right. I mean, yes, the New York City running community, and it can be pretty white, but there's no reason why you can't diversify and, you know, and also amplify some of those voices that people aren't hearing as much. And so that that was definitely a conscious decision. And then in particular, when with the article that you reference, um, the black off the track article that I did in June, that was early June and I wasn't assigned that by my editor whatsoever. Mm -hmm. That story came about because I, as I'm, you know, sitting here reading and listening to podcasts and watching the news and there's this encouragement of like, what are you going to do with, you know, the resources that you have and the platform that you have. And for me, I'm like, okay, yeah, great. I mean, it's easy to get people to speak on a podcast and that kind of stuff, but for a moment, I realized the biggest platform I do have is Sports Illustrated. Like it's the sort of like the sports magazine of record and, and one of the biggest magazines in this country. And so what I can do there sort of is amplify these voices. And for a moment, take a second to educate myself and listen to these experiences because I decided to reach out to some of the top track and field athletes in the world. Um, these are Olympic record holders, um, you know, world champions, gold medalists, and that kind of stuff. And my goal here was to peel back the extra layer where I've talked to these people so many times in the past about their accomplishments on the track and I'll learn their backstory, you know, where they grew up and how their, you know, progression was in high school and that kind of stuff. But I never really actually dove into the thing of what is it like being black in America? It's interesting in particular with track because you can see, you know, sort of like LeBron James out on the street and you would know who he is. So that his, no one's going to be super racist to LeBron James and in his face. But track athletes are less popular. So they go about their daily lives just like you and me, and they do have these encounters. And sometimes they're really ugly and hurtful. And so I decided to just ask them three questions and then sit back, listen. And whatever they told me, I just went about and transcribed, uh, transcribed the whole entire thing. And it ended up being like 14 athletes. And initially I was like, this could be 14 different articles because this is 14 really deep experiences. And in speaking to my editors, we decided to really condense it into one powerful piece that it's the longest thing I've ever written for Sports Illustrated. I think it came out to like 7,000 plus words, but it's one that's really hard to put down, I, I feel like, because you just are in a little bit of shock hearing like, I can't believe that this happened to this person who, you know, I see 
with a smile on their face and with the flag around their, you know, their, their bodies when they're celebrating these gold medals and these, and these records, but it's what their real life experiences are. And so for me, I, that entire week, I didn't run a step because I was like, I can use my time in a much better way. And I was just on the phone and on zoom recording these interviews and talking to these people and, and putting in that work. And then when it did come out, like I, it was pretty widely shared and I was very happy with it, but I don't think that's the end. And like, that's not the only thing I can do. That was one article. I got to do more and I want to continue to do more. And so whether that's, you know, currently working on something where I might be doing a little bit more investigative work into someone with like a, you know, racist past or that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it, it definitely has come into work and real life at this point for me. Well, as a runner and as someone who follows the running space, I appreciate you recognizing the the platform you have and using it for these purposes. I think a lot of people appreciate that. And I want to go back to that that image that was really powerful. You talked about someone with a smile on their face, a black runner, a smile on their face and a flag around their body. And I that really spoke to me, the idea of kind of, I, I guess, black athletes not being able to maybe verbalize their experience in the same way until this time and kind of painting over it with, with a smile. And, and that's what society expects. I even think about, you know, Alafine not being able to talk about the lack of media attention she received at the trials until months after. And so I appreciate you kind of mentioning that that glossing over that that putting on a, a fake face that um a lot of black athletes i think have, have had to or probably feel like they have to do um in the past and hopefully that will be able to change hopefully that is changing yeah it's so gut-wrenching when you do end up hearing and reading about some of these experiences where like alphine tuliamuk sharing that long instagram caption about what it was like to watch herself win the Olympic trials, but watch the broadcast and not getting sort of mention or attention. Like it's so heartbreaking when then you, when you even just in, it, she's in your face as like one of the nicest people in the world. And you're like, how can this happen to someone like that? But you know, it's recognizing now that there are these sort of microaggressions and, and just like not paying attention to, to things that you should. And so, um, yeah, it, it sucks that it happens to sometimes the best people. Totally. So going back to New York, when you're thinking about this time and the New York running community, would you see any long-term effects as a member of the New York running community? How do you see this changing or not changing this city and the runners within it? Yeah, I think everyone's, it's definitely, everyone's more mindful about these sort of conversations that are taking place. And it's, you know, recognizing something when you, when you see an issue now, a lot of people I think are more comfortable speaking up about it. And if they do, then it's your your responsibility to recognize it and also listen. And if if you have to enact change, then you do it. And so it's, it's something that I think goes beyond just the New York City running community. I think just like the city in general is also working to make change. And so there will be change. It just, and at the same time, I kind of recognize that it takes time to sometimes like see the change that you want to happen in this world. I think there's just so many different areas that I think need improvement and it's not going to happen overnight for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely not. I mean, such small steps and such a long vision and a forever vision of what needs to happen, as I know you've, you've referenced multiple times. Is there anyone that comes to mind that you want to thank for the recent activism in the New York running community? I know you mentioned coffee. Is there anyone else? Yeah, Coffee's been doing amazing stuff, and right alongside him throughout all these protests is uh, Power Malu. Like he's, and I think he's been to every single protest like in the city since like late May. And I, he got arrested, I think, in Times Square, but then eventually um, let let go. But uh, during during a protest, so he's someone who's like this momentum is continuing to go with him. And then you know some of the people we've had conversations with on the podcast, where it's Jason Fulford who's Eric Gardner's cousin. He organized a protest run that was amazing. Allison Desir has been doing amazing things for years. And now seeing her finally get this moment and this, and, and this shine that she truly deserves, I hope it doesn't stop. And I hope yeah. it continues to keep going. Um, and I'm trying to think, yeah, there's just so many people, whether, and like, if you organize like a group run, that's, you know, a protest to raise awareness for against, you know, social injustice, and it's like five people who show up, that's still making a difference. And five people are still showing up. And it shows that they care. And someone heard your message. And so I hope that there's more even it, it can be like a five person run, or it can go on to be like one of the huge protest runs that that shuts down the Brooklyn Bridge. I think there's, there's no end in sight for for when these are going to stop until I think that there's hopefully some sort of justice and change in society. Yeah, let, let's hope so. So thank you. You've, you've provided so many really powerful insights. And I usually end these with rapid fire questions. But given the nature of the topic and the style of this episode, I just want to ask you, why is New York the best city in the world? So I used to get into this argument all the time with, with, you know, my friends from Chicago while I was in college. And it's, you know, I, I could point to the pizza. I could point to the bagels. I could oh, point to... Don't get me started on the, the pizza and the bagels. Yeah, it's, I mean, I, it's the best here. Um, and I think that it's a city of 8 million people. And I think, you know, what I've, what Leanne and I and, and Gene Mack back when the, the Runners of NYC podcast started is just like, we realized is like, we're never going to be at a shortage of interesting people to talk to. And I think it's just sort of like the, the culture of the city, there's the nonstop nature about it. I, I thrive in it and I love it. So yeah, I'm always going to be a homer for New York. And it's funny because like I'll, I'll, I'll have, you know, conversations with people and they're like, you might be one of the biggest like New York defenders. And I'm like, I love this city so much. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm here for, for good, I think. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you for using your platform for good and all of the, the work that you're doing. And thanks for talking with me today. No, of course. This is a lot of fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. If you are in the New York area, or if you just want to learn more about this movement, follow at Running to Protest on Instagram. I have had the opportunity to attend protests in various cities around this country, but there is something incomparably powerful about running to protest, about moving bodies, demanding justice. Like Coffee said, these protests are not going to stop until there is real justice for Black people. And Chris discussed the changes these protests have brought to the New York running community. I can't wait to see the momentum 
they continue to build in New York and perhaps around the world. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. You can reach out to me and follow along with new episodes on Instagram at socialsportpod. Thanks for joining me today. Keep sporting and keep resisting.